Hey y'all, and welcome back to another thrilling episode of the Cocaine Podcast. Um, just kidding, this is the Years of Lead Pod. I'm your host, Alexander Reed Ross, and today we're going to talk about cocaine. No, really. Um, so now that we've gone over the rise of the Corleonesi from the hinterlands of Sicily to the top of the Cosa Nostra at the end of the 1970s, we can kind of survey where we're at in the configuration and mobilization of organized crime in Italy going into the 1980s. There's the Andrangheta War, which happened at the end of the 60s, early 70s, and led to the rise of the De Stefano clan as the most important fascist-aligned mob family in Calabria in southern Italy. There's the Nuovo Camorra Organizzata of Raffaele Cutolo out of Naples. And then in Sicily, there is the so-called Second Mafia War between the Bontates and Inzerillos on one side and the Corleonesi on the other. In the middle of all of this is Rome, where different areas had been for a long time carved out by local crime bosses with their own alliances and affiliations. That's where the Banda della Maliana was making a name for itself. Their execution of Frankie the criminal in the parking lot of a seedy racetrack in the periphery of Rome was really only the beginning. One tough guy named Sergio Carozzi refused to give in to an extortion effort by Nicolino Celis and reported that co-founder of the Banda to the cops, getting him sent to jail. The gang started calling Carozzi at home and at work, threatening his life, terrorizing his wife and daughter with horrible insults and vulgarity. On the evening, August 29th, 1979, Katozzi is playing cards outside of a bar near his boutique when a guy in a striped shirt and sunglasses walks up behind him, fires three shots in his back and neck, and jumps on a Honda 500 driven by Nicolini Salis' brother, Fabrizio, who took off immediately. The shooter was Eduardo Toscano, a longtime friend of Salis. They'd let Fabrizio drive the bike because they figured it was a question of brotherly honor, since Carozzi's testimony had sent Nicolino to jail. While this murder took place shortly after the killing of Franchino the criminal, the Banda del Maliana would take care of more menial stuff for the Nuovo Camorra Organizzata as well. Remember, Raffaele Cutolo has made Celis the effective chief of the Camorra in Rome, so the Banda della Maliana carries some weight. One time, Cutolo asked them to take a green beamer from Naples up to Rome to have it destroyed at a junkyard because Cutolo had murdered someone there and it was full of blood and evidence. These are the kind of small tasks assigned to the group as they rose through the ranks. Increasingly, the Banda became a feared presence in Rome, which meant that more people sought them out for help and protection in often quixotic scenarios. One owner of a truck of Persian rugs that they stole uh, went to them for help, not knowing that their own logistics company had sold them out. In another case, Cutolo's rival, Michele Zaza, nicknamed the Madman, came to the Magliana to ask for protection against the Nuovo Comora hit squad. Instead, the gang contributed its own hitmen to Cutolo's search for Zaza, who owned properties on their turf that they wanted to take over. But if this sounds a little complicated, it's really just the beginning. 
See, the Malayana guys had one among their ranks who was more familiar with Zaza, named Claudio Sicilia, who originally met up with the guys around the racetrack Tor de Valle during their formative days. Sicilia already knew Cutolo from Poggio Reale prison in Naples after killing a powerful smuggler in the mid-1960s. Sicilia was in good with the Camorra and met the Maliana guys in the late 70s. At the same time, Sicilia had also met Zaza, the madman, in prison, and the two got into a wild fight when Zaza started to beat up a younger kid. Zaza said the only way that they could make peace was to have their families marry into one another, so Zaza's wife becomes Sicilia's daughter's godmother. This kind of thing is common in the Mafia, where you have marriages forming bonds between allies and opponents. In the case of the Corleonesi, for instance, we saw the Rinas and the Bagarellas creating a blood bond through marriage of one another's sisters. So all that's happening while Sicilia is on the side of the Maliana, which is still Cutolo loyal. In particular, Sicilia is involved with drugs, and becomes a kind of useful intermediary between Zaza, Cutolo, and the Maliana. According to him, Abatino and Toscano from the Maliana would bring the coke to a chill bar behind San Paolo Basilica in Rome with a back room that had a pool table, and they'd front the coke to the Nuova Camorra guys there, and then the new Camorra guys would hide it under the engines of their cars and drive it down to Naples, paying for it a couple of weeks later. A lot of the coke appears to have been coming from South America, whereas the heroin had been coming in from Southeast Asia via the Sicilian Mafia. Zaza dealt more with the Cosa Nostra and the heroin, and specifically he dealt with the Corleonesi under Salvatore Shorty Rina. The Gutolo clan dealt more with cocaine, and they were kind of at war with Shorty Rina's Corleonesi. But the Cutoliani were getting at least some of their drugs, one kilo at a time, from the back room of a Roman bar dealt by the Banda della Maliana. In this way, the amelioration of conflict in Rome between Zaza and Cutolo had taken place through the Banda della Maliana and their allies through Sicilia. Abatino, one of their founders, would later confess, I, Toscana, Colafili, Piccone, Mastro Pietro, Giuseppucci, Castelletti, Danesi, and Paradisi himself, who also took care of custody and marketing, scoured the square to impose our product on the drug dealers, promising and guaranteeing them protection against previous suppliers. In other words, we put the competition in the position of no longer being able to operate if not referring to us. Antonio Mancini put it perhaps even more bluntly, we made them an offer they could not refuse, to take the drugs from us or through us. By accepting, they automatically joined our group. No one ever refused to access our proposals. As if it happened, the reluctant was a dead man. It's important to remember here that the Banda is actually split into two factions associated with the two Roman neighborhoods, the Malianesi from Maliana and the Testaccini from Testacchio. At this point, they're working together on a mission to conquer most of Rome, but there was kind of a rift between the two groups, something almost imperceptible. 
The Malianesi thought that the Testaccini were keeping them in the dark about some of their side businesses, and the guy who was growing into the position of gang leader, Giuseppucci, was more loyal to the Testaccini. So, despite the fact that the gang was called the Banda della Maliana, there were already territorial questions beginning to arise as they really started to spread their wings over Rome. Now, all this barroom drug dealing, the growing control of the streets, the murders, and general criminality, really builds the Banda de la Maliana's reputation and starts attracting some very bad people. Around this time, going into the late 1970s, the political violence in Rome has sort of shifted from the ideologically doctrinaire and austere paramilitary organizations like Ordine Nuovo and Avanguardia Nazionale toward a more loose association of fascist thugs based around the idea of armed spontaneity. See, the state had started to turn against the fascists for their incessant terror attacks against civilians, particularly after they proved a failure in sparking a kind of a coup against the parliamentary republic. With their own important contacts within the state starting to throw them under the bus, the fascist movement became more unpredictable, anti-state, and interested in the chaotic workings of the underworld. The younger militants of the fascist movement were drawn to the life of crime. They needed money, and so they had to self-finance, they fenced the jewels that they stole, and this got them into mob connections. Franco Giuseppucci took a, a shine to them immediately. Remember that Giuseppucci is already a fascist who worked as a bouncer at a fascist club, so he knew the scene. And the young fascists joined him at the bars where he held court with the Banda della Maliana, in particular a bar called Barone on Via Marconi, getting into drug trafficking, shakedowns, and of course, old reliable, the bets down at Torre di Valle. In these days, there's one dude in particular who's moving toward the mafia from the fascist cells, Massimo Carminati, along with his friends Claudio and Stefano Bracci and later Walter Sordi and Alessandro Alibrandi. This crew had been involved in a number of stabbings and threats against leftists during the mid-1970s, and in September 1977 they claimed their first murder victim, a member of the extra-parliamentary group Lotta Continua named Walter Rossi. Soon, this group is going to brand themselves the Nuclei Armati Rivoluzionari, or the Armed Revolutionary Cells, perhaps the bloodiest fascist group, pound for pound, of the Anni di Piombo. What can I say? Franco Giuseppucci knew how to pick the heavyweights, some real bravi ragazzi. Another man of the Roman fascist underworld, the Ordine Nuovo adherent Paolo Aleandri, had helped create Costruiamo la Azione, a propagandistic effort to create diffuse fascist spontaneism among the masses. Aleandri worked with the Banda della Maliana and the criminologist Aldo Semerari. Basically, the Banda would carry out bombings and kidnappings, and Semerari would turn out psychological reports and trial assistance to make sure that they could get out of jail. Aleandri is asked to stash a bag of weapons. He splits them between two places, but since his fascist milieu is all about spontaneity, some of his right-wing thugs take some of his guns without telling anyone. When Aleandri can't return the guns, the Banda della Maliana kidnap him. They take him out to Achilia by the coast and keep him in a room with barred windows. Meanwhile, Carminati of the NAR gets together with two of his fascist comrades and arranges for a handoff of weapons outside of Trastevere Station. 
The exchange happens for two MAB machine guns, submachine guns, and a couple of hand grenades. Like that, Aleandri is free, and Carminati is bonded closer together with the Banda della Maliana. One of the things he does for them, for instance, is to build a pipe bomb that they detonate between the shutters and glass front door of a clandestine betting room that had fallen into competition with a new gambling den opened down the street. Cristiano Fioravanti of the NAR would later explain, quote, I limited myself to carrying out an attack on a gas station located in a street perpendicular to the Pinetta Sacchetti. It was a large plant, and the indication was given to us by Massimo Sparti, who knew and frequented the Maliana circles, from which he obtained documents and plates for us. Sparti told me, and Tiraboski, the material perpetrators, that to ingratiate ourselves more with the people of the environment, it would have been appropriate to do them a favor of the attack. The fact dates back to 1978. To Alibrandi, Carminati, and Bracci, those from the Maliana gave indications on the places and people to rob. They also had the function of recovering the credits of those from Maliana. It was also proposed to me, but I refuse and to eliminate some unwelcome people. So, the Banda de la Maliana is getting bigger and bigger territories to work with, they're increasingly absorbing and dominating members of the fascist underground, and then Enrico de Peris, Giuseppucci's old sponsor, whose guns he was trying to hide in the early days, gets out of prison. Now they're opening up to more people, De Paris's bigger connections like Danilo Abruciati, a wise guy with a knack, for selling drugs, comes into the picture. Now, Abruciati had come up in Rome's Prima Valle district as a young hood, a failed boxer who would burgle luxury homes in the wealthier districts with his gang, who people called the Chameleons. He got into more organized crime through the Clan de Marsiliesi in the early 1970s, getting a reputation as a guy with a big mustache who rode loud motorcycles. He was a shitty wife-beater who passed into the gang of an area mobster named Donald Duck, if you remember that guy, and ultimately the Banda de la Maliana through de Perez's Testacini. With a resume like that, you might think that Abruciati had made some pretty high-level friends. The Clan de Marsiliesi in particular were clearly plugged in with the members of the Secret Services, who organized through a little renegade Masonic lodge known as Propaganda Due. And Abruciati takes NAR member Massimo Carminati under his wing. Pretty soon, with Abruciati's connection, Ernesto Diotalevi, the Banda della Maliana enters into deeper dealings with coke suppliers and heroin suppliers from the Porta Nuova gang in the Cosa Nostra, with the cashier being a gangster named Pipo Calo. If you remember from last episode, Pipo Calo is known as the man of the Cosa Nostra in Rome, but he is, until the end of the 1970s, associated with Stefano Bontate, who is, broadly speaking, the most powerful gangster in Sicily during the mid-1970s. Bontate didn't get that way by selling cigarettes. He was the most powerful drug lord, and he worked through the drug dealer Francesco Marina Manoia. The latter later confirmed that Pipo Calo fenced jewels stolen by the Banda della Maliana as well. So Calo 
was starting to make good business in heroin and coke, connecting the Banda de la Maliana, which would effectively conquer the major districts of Rome for the Sicilian drug trade. And they start expanding market share down in Puglia, way down into the heel of the Italian boot. Uh, and also, Giuseppucci begins to do campaign work for the Movimento Sociale Italiano, even as far as Milan, the fascist party. So the gang is growing exponentially with the rapid rise of Rome's appetite for the white stuff, and they're splitting up turf accordingly. I'll cite again from Ragazzi di Malavita, which really is an incredible book that everybody should read if you're interested in this kind of thing. Abatino and Colafili controlled the Maliana and San Paolo areas. No surprise there, since Abatino was the original connector between Testaccini and Malianesi, and Colafili was one of their craziest and most violent elements. Danesi and Mastro Pietro controlled the Trullo. Castelletti, the Colli Portuensi area, these guys were OG Testaccini, and this territory extended from an area around the Maliana into an area closer to Rome's center with quite a number of Venezuelan immigrants. Toscano's group had the Tufello Val Melaina area. This was more remote in the northeast, perhaps a bit more difficult of a nut to crack, but then Toscano was one of the most brutal Malianese leaders. Picone, an old-school Testaccini, had a similar drug-dealing business in Viale Marconi and Alla Maliana. The heart of the Testaccini, Giuseppucci, De Pedis, Abruciati, etc., had the Testaccio Ostiense area, the Maranella, and Ostia. Here was probably the sweetest plum, the beautiful beaches of Ostia, and their hardcore base in Testaccio, which they dominated unchallenged. These aren't exactly small territories where the Banda della Maliana had established themselves, but again, it was just the beginning. One of the Deperis and Abruciati faction's deputies, Gianfranco Sestili, actually started running pure coke to England through his girlfriend, Celia Barreto Kerenko, an employee of the Brazilian embassy in London. And I mean literally, she brought it there, you know, inside her body, 200 grams a trip, bringing the money back through transfers to a bank in Switzerland where her mom lived. So, that's how the Banda della Maliana converged into one of the strongest mafia forces in Italy and took over the Roman drug trade by the end of the 1970s, influences from the Corleonesi, eventually, and also from the uh, Cutolo organization. But within a few years, it's all going to come crashing down. This starts on August 2nd, 1980, when a bomb rips through the Bologna train station, killing 85 people. Placed by members of the Nuclei Armati Rivoluzionari, the bomb was meant as part of a broader effort to confuse and terrify the public. In January the next year, a bag was found on a train to Milan that stopped in Bologna, containing weapons and explosives, enabling authorities to place the blame on an international syndicate of fascists. However, the weapons had been procured from the Banda della Maliana stash in the basement of the Ministry of Public Health by Massimo Carminati, that member of the NAR. 
And as it happened, two members of the Secret Services were later convicted for placing the bag there to derail the investigation. The provenance of the weapon found in the terror on train's effort to derail the investigation into the Bologna bombing later showed that the Banda de la Malianas fascist soldiers may have had something to do with the massacre with the support of some members of the state. Indeed, magistrates later hypothesized that the operation had been carried out with the collaboration of Massimo Carminati of the NAR in order to prevent the fascist criminologist Aldo Semerari from confessing about the fascist underworld and its involvement in the Bologna massacre. Intriguingly, weapons from that same stash of Banda de la Malianas in the basement of the Ministry of Public Health would be matched to the bullets that killed journalist Carmine Pecorelli, the same Mino Pecorelli who was saying that he was going to go forward with the news about checks from public coffers controlled by Giulio Andreotti's faction of the Christian Democrats and flowing into the pockets of mobsters and their friends. Okay, so, putting that aside for a second, we have to think about criminals and their friends. Namely, Frankie the criminal, who also had friends, and who the Banda de la Maliana had unceremoniously executed. Namely, Giovanni Proietti, a guy born in 1909 who came up through the fish markets of San Giovanni di Dio in Monteverde, district of Rome. The Proietti clan had emerged within the area of illegal gambling, contesting the hegemony of the Maliana gang in the racetracks and underground casinos. The touchy conflict between sides exploded the next year in September 1980, a month after the bombing, where two of Franchino the criminal's former deputies finally caught up to Giuseppucci after a meeting with his gang near Piazza San Cosimato rolling up to his car in a Honda and putting a bullet in his side. Only one bullet hit him, the only one that counted. Giuseppucci was able to drive down to the hospital, but he died a few minutes later. Police investigating the murder found that Fernando Proietti, known as the Boxer, had shot Giuseppucci wearing a mask and a blonde wig, while Mario Golden Balls Proietti drove. They found a Honda five. <laughs> they found a Honda 500 motorcycle, a wig, and ski goggles at the boxer's garage, and in Ostia, near another house, they found a freshly dug hole. The cops had also found out that the Proietti plan included the elimination of Banda della Maliana associate Mimo Il Biondo. The Banda della Maliana then targets Fernando's cousin, Enrico Proietti, just days later. At 2 a.m., Abatino and a couple of accomplices drive up alongside Enrico's Fiat Ritmo, armed with a MAB submachine gun, a shoddy, and a 9 caliber pistol. The driver sees them, tries to reverse the car back towards the gates of the villa that they just left, and then tries to run for it, jumping into a nearby ditch. The woman in the car crouches down with the other person in the car, and Colafili empties his shotgun into the passenger side. The bullet hit Nicoletta Marchesi, who was in the car alongside her boyfriend Pierluigi Parente, a lawyer with no knowledge of the gang war. A month after this debacle, Abatino and his gang try again. As Enrico was getting into his Mercedes outside of a sporting goods shop, they attempted a drive-by, catching him in the lurch. But Enrico Proietti survived after being shot and made it to a hospital. 
The bravi ragazzi of the Nuclei Armati Rivoluzionari showed themselves to be eager pursuers of the banda's infamy, helping injure one of the other side's members. In December 1980, Mario Golden Balls Proietti is caught by the banda. They rear-end his Renault 5 and start shooting. He tries to drive away, but then drives into a nearby shrub. He's injured in the hands, but he hides for a couple of hours in a junkyard and then rings the intercom for a nearby apartment. They let him in, and he gets away. The attack is carried out by Sicilia, Carminati, and Bracci. The gang war continued. On January 23, 1981, a shooter in a long raincoat with a false pocket entered a racing room of Via Rubicone, creeping up on an old-school mobster named Oratieto Benedetti, sitting in a shabby red leather chair scarred with cigarette burns, and shooting him four times. Although Benedetti ran his own rackets, he was friends with the Proiettis, so he was killed by De Perez and Toscano, who drove away in a Kawasaki 1300. In the meantime, with Giuseppucci dead, Nicolino Salis took the initiative to try and lead the group. But remember, Salis is an original Maliana gang member from the parts of Achilia and Ostia that fell into the Testaccini turf. He gets a shipment of three kilos of coke from the Sicilians and splits it unevenly between the groups. In response, Eduardo Toscano, who's shown himself to be a devoted and effective killer during the war, decides that it's time to whack Salis. One story indicates that he shows up with Abatino at the house of Mancone, where Salis is hanging out, and shoots him dead. It's hard to confirm this because Salis's body disappeared on February 3, 1981 and has never been found. As the war in Rome is escalating, it's important to note that Valerio Fioravanti of the Nuclei Armati Rivoluzionari had been released from jail in late 1979 and actually didn't like the extent to which people like Carminati and Alibrandi and Bracci and some others had gotten close with the Mafia. This is when Valerio reproduces his own branch of the NAR, including Francesca Mambro, Gilberto Cavallini, Giorgio Valle, and Luigi Ciavardini, all 20 years old or less. During the middle of 1980, there was some rapprochement with the Alibrandi-Carminati faction, but it sort of disintegrates again. At the same time, Cristiano Fioravanti, Valerio's little brother, tries to move back and forth between both sides. Meanwhile, a phone call between Luigi Civardini and his comrade Nani De Angelis is intercepted by the cops, who surprise the two during a meeting. The cops think De Angelis was responsible for the earlier action at the Giulio Cesare High School where a group of police were ambushed, and they beat him really badly. After getting stitched up at the infirmary, the cops threw him in an isolation cell instead of taking him to the hospital. He was found dead, hanging by a bedsheet the next day, but the family believed that it was staged to conceal death by being beaten and then neglected. Ciavardini confessed to his involvement in the Giulio Cesare attack soon after, and the papers announced that Fioravanti, Mambro, and Valle were being hunted by the police. The two Fioravanti brothers are estranged a bit, but then they reconvene together on February 5th, 1981. Some of their gang have spent time in Lebanon and returned due to the outbreak of the Lebanese Civil War. 
They wanted to do one more robbery and then go back to Lebanon from Switzerland. But they left their weapons with a comrade in Padua whose wife got mad. The comrade deposited the weapons in a canal. So now they had to find the weapons in the canal, do the robbery, and then flee Italy through Switzerland. It's a dangerous and fraught affair at the Scaricatore Canal in Padua. Since... Fioravanti has become an infamous name in Italy, particularly after the Bologna massacre. Valerio finds a wetsuit, but they know that Cristiano is a better diver, so he and Cavallini call Cristiano in from Milan. A nearby watchful person sees the strange scene of a guy in a wetsuit being helped into the canal at midnight, and he calls the cops. The patrol spots him. A cop takes his gun out and tells Cristiano to get out of the water. Valerio is in a car with Francesca. He reverses some 30 feet, turns the car and headlights off, walks up to the cops with two pistols he takes from his jacket and shouts, don't move, at the officer radioing for help. Valerio shoots him three times and kills him and takes cover behind the Carabinieri car, telling the other cop to drop his weapons. He comes out from behind the car and starts shooting. The other cop unloads his gun into Valerio's legs. Cristiano runs over to the cop car to take the other officer's pistol. The cop, who's still up, makes for his machine gun, but Cristiano is faster and he shoots him to death. Two cops dead and Valerio badly hurt, with his femoral artery severed and he's bleeding out. Cristiano and Francesca take Valerio back to the apartment in Padua and leave him there. Valerio begs the kids next door to call the ambulance. According to him, the police tried to prevent the doctors from seeing him once he gets to the hospital, and only after the left-wing magistrate Vittorio Boracetti arrives at the hospital at the and the head physician came to operate himself did Valerio receive treatment. Boracetti even slept in Fioravanti's room to ensure that he wasn't murdered by the cops. So Valerio is arrested while attempting to recover from his wounds. His plan is to confess in partial ways to cover for everyone while saving his own skin, and his brother and Francesca Mambro are in Rome looking for a place to hide out, while others in the NAR are calling Valerio infamous for collaborating. A guy Cristiano and Francesca know in Alabrandi's circles hooks them up with a house belonging to a friend of Marcello Colafili, a heavyweight of the Banda della Maliana. The NAR found themselves in the middle of the climax of a gang war that had been raging for months. In the final confrontation on March 16, 1981, one of the original gang members who had procured the chloroform for the Duke Grazioli kidnapping, Marcello Colafili, and his accomplice, Antonio Mancini, ambushed Mario and Maurizio Proietti, walking into their apartment with their wives and children, Daniele, Alessio, and Stefano. Covered by balaclavas, they opened fire, with one of the brothers able to pull his revolver and shoot back. Both brothers were hit, along with the wife, Stefania, and Colafili. The other wife tried to throw herself at the assassin to protect the kids, but he pistol-whipped her down. A cop arrived almost immediately, shooting Mancini in the shoulder, but caught a bullet as well. Now five people are shot, and a total of six people are injured and bleeding so far, with more police showing up. 
The assassins grabbed Maurizio's four-year-old son, using him as a human shield as they ascended the outside staircase of the building to try and escape. Colafili is still bleeding profusely from the gunshot he'd taken, and the two leave the kid on the second floor, slipping into a neighborhood apartment. Maurizio was already dead on the ground, and Mario was bleeding out. Colafili and Mancini were barricaded in with no chance of escape. Using the phone to call their gang at the bar, they said, We're shut up in a house, call some lawyers and have them come here, because otherwise they'll kill us. Finally, they gave themselves up, just as the cops, armed with machine guns, are about to break down the door. So, the war between Banda de la Maliana had cost the gang big, but they more or less came out on top. Giuseppucci's dead, Mancini and Colafili are in jail, and in the ensuing power struggle, Celis mysteriously vanishes, apparently whacked by Toscano. The Nar, meanwhile, are attempting to recollect themselves after the devastating loss of Valerio, planning either to flee the country or to free their leader from police custody. Then, in early April, Cristiano Fioravanti is arrested in Rome. Even more shockingly, he perhaps suspects that his brother has turned state evidence. His brother's gone pentito, so maybe he should too. Cristiano confesses everything he knows about the NAR. In particular, he tells the cops about the fascists' pipeline out of Italy and into Switzerland through the deserted Gagiolo Pass. The police are monitoring the area and expect Cavallini to cross the border, having orders to fire at the terrorists if threatened. In two weeks, April 20th, 1981, they find the suspected car parked at night in the expected place, a scenic spot overlooking a river, and they open fire. But it isn't Cavallini. It's Massimo Carminati, who has a kind of double militancy with the Banda della Maliana. Carminati is shot in the head, his comrade Alfredo Graniti was hit in the calf, and Mimo Magneta of the Avanguardia Nazionale threw himself from the car onto the ground in surrender. Around 150 shots were found in their Renault 5. Mambro later stated, quote, After a few days, we get the news of the ambush at Carminati, but that still doesn't bother us. In those days, we had moved to a house in Rome. One night, we decided not to go to sleep in that house, and the next day, when we still hadn't returned, the police arrive and shoot it down. After this last episode, we understood that there was a problem and that maybe Cristiano was talking. The NAR is facing a real problem. When Alessandro Alibrandi and some of his cohort return from Lebanon, Carminati's out of commission, seriously injured in the eye, and now the Fioravanti brothers are both in jail. The Lebanese Falange supposedly kicked the NAR members out of Lebanon, but that is seriously debatable. But anyway, Alibrandi is back in Rome and he takes command of the NAR. So at this point, in the spring of 1981, the Fioravanti branch of the NAR has basically merged into the branch that's integrated with the Banda della Maliana, such that the former becomes effectively melded with the latter. In other words, the leader of the NAR is now a member of the Banda della Maliana. So, as the leader of the NAR, 
Alibrandi doesn't just bring it into the banda's general practices. He uses the apparatus to settle scores. Alibrandi has more than one ship on his shoulder, and with a taste of power, he feels ready to strike. On June the 30th, calling themselves the National Revolutionary Autonomous Committees, the NARD disarmed two officers of the Guardia di Finanza at gunpoint. In their communique claiming the action, the NARD write, One year after the Bologna massacre, now more and more in the eyes of all, a massacre like the others of the state, the national revolutionary militants are claiming their leading role in the ambit of the broader movement that aims to destroy this regime and the corrupt political assumptions from which it is moved. Hit the state mercenaries and strategists of reactionary terror. The next day, Alibrandi tracks down a guy named Pino de Luca, who he accuses of having screwed him over by stealing money and weapons. After waiting outside De Luca's house all day, Alibrandi started to return home, but then he sees him driving his blue Renault 5. He followed De Luca back to his house and knocks on the door. De Luca's in the shower, another person, probably of his family, says. But just then, De Luca steps out and sees Alibrandi. He dives back in the bathroom, locking the door to defend himself, but Alibrandi follows him and shoots 12 shots from both his pistols into the door, killing De Luca. From this point, the NAR can only continue to lash out at the fascists in the scene who they feel wronged by. After pulling off a jewelry heist, they go after another guy named Marco Pizzari, who they blame for a previous bust against Luigi Ciavardini and Nani De Angelis. Pizzari was a long-time, lifelong friend of Ciavardini and had tried to get him to leave the life of fascist terrorism. That led the NAR to believe that somehow Pizzari was responsible for the phone tap that exposed Ciavardini and De Angelis. Cavallini, Soderini, and Alibrandi use a siren to pull him over in their blue Fiat Ritmo. Pizzari gets out of the car, Alibrandi and Cavallini approach him and fire. Pizzari falls to the ground, Cavallini ends his life with a shot to the back of the head. But there's another story here that's a bit more intriguing. Pizzari was one of the guys who was going to go on a trip with Giovardini around the time of the Bologna massacre. Giovardini had to call in to postpone the event, which the prosecution later used to show that he was at the massacre. Pizzari had told the counterterrorism police about the phone call, and then his girlfriend confirmed it. She started to get crazy phone calls and left the city on the advice of the counterterrorism police. Pizzari apparently stayed and was killed on September 30th the following year. So it's plausible that the NAR murdered Pizzari not for being responsible for a phone tap against Ciavardini that led to his arrest, but for his collaboration on the Bologna case. Next up on the hit list was a fascist of the older generation, Giorgio Mugiani, who the NAR accused of selling out back in 1976 after the killing of Gaetano Amoroso. This is personal to Cavallini because he was the killer of Amoroso. After an MSE section had been targeted in Rome, Cavallini hit the streets with a squad to get payback. Amoroso was in the crew of anti-fascists that they spotted and then attacked. So, Cavallini and Alibrandi, with Walter Sordi, get a stolen BMW and go to Milan to track down Mugiani. 
In this operation, they figure that they're being followed by the anti-terrorism squad. Alibrandi screeches to a halt and jumps out of the car, drawing both his pistols and shooting at the driver. His intuition had actually proven correct. The driver was now dead, and the two other agents opened fire. Cavallini and Sordi start shooting as well. A passerby is hit and injured, one of the agents flees on foot, and the other is killed in the car. The would-be hit squad returns to Rome, and the NAR turn their attention instead of the MSE to a man of the counterterrorism police known for brutal interrogations, a man named Captain Francesco Straullo. They, take, they stake out his home, find out when he comes, and goes from his house south of Rome. They decide that they'll ambush him after an underpass. Incredibly, the morning of the action, Straulu is driven in a civilian car, a red Alfa Sud or a, a Ritmo, instead of the usual white armored Alfetta. There are conflicting claims as to whether it's an Alfa Sud or a Ritmo. The team brings assault rifles, and when the red car passes into the short tunnel, Walter Sordi walks into the middle of the street and starts firing his G3. Alibrandi joins him and adds by shooting a Garand. The red car starts swerving, and after passing through the tunnel, Soderini and Cavallini start shooting into the passenger side. After the car crashes into a wall, Alibrandi walks up and shoots Straulu in the head with an armor-piercing round. That causes a big mess. The gang had originally planned to bring a spear and cut Straulu's heart out, but they decided against it due to the carnage that was already at the scene. They issue a communique written by Valle and Cavallini under the name of the Franco Anselmi Fire Group, named after their early comrade who had been shot and killed during a robbery, sent out on October 23, 1981. The truth later surfaced that Straulu had gone to the meetings of the Federation of Young Socialists when he was young, and he joined the police academy to the astonishment of his friends. He later told a friend that he joined the police with a sense of justice with a capital J, or G, as the Italian would have it. And another interesting coincidence, Straulu had been assigned to the protection service of Pizzari's girlfriend before he was killed. It is again plausible that he was murdered to get to her, or at least this is the case made by Paolo Morando in his recent book on the NAR and the Bologna Massacre. The final act of the drama takes place on December 5th, after the killing of Straulu, Alibrandi has the feeling that he can get away with whatever, and the guy he hates the most is a cop who beat him up after he was arrested back in 1980 when Valerio had the, killed the officer Maurizio Arnesano outside of the Lebanese embassy. That cop's name was Agent Angelino. Alibrandi came with Walter Sordi to Angelino's house along with two other guys who he'd taken to Lebanon. Not finding him, they went into the city with little to do. They think about disarming a traffic cop patrol, but it eludes them. In the middle of the day, a police car drives by and then does a U-turn. Alibrandi drops the orange he was eating and takes out his thirty-eight from his bag. He starts shooting and he's walking to the cop car, but one agent escapes the car and hides behind a wall. The other one gets hit several times but makes it to a pillar of a restaurant sign and returns fire. 
The third is shot and dying in the back of the car. The squad all start to shoot. Sordi is hit in the hand. Alibrandi is in the middle of the hail of bullets and he's shot by the agent behind the column in the back of the neck. Sordi turns, returns fire, jumps into the cop car with the other two in his squad and drives down the street, hijacks a different car and escapes. The agent in the back of the cop car dies two days later. Alibrandi is taken to a hospital, but he dies within a few hours. The NAR had lost another crucial leader, and the Banda de la Maliana had lost an important prospect. And remember that guy, Massimo Carminati's me mentor in the Banda, Danilo Abruciati, the chameleon who worked with the Clan de Marsiliesi and helped forge those connections with Pipo Calo and the Cosa Nostra? Well, he'd become such a big deal that even the Sardinian developer and mobbed-up fixer Flavio Carboni would reach out and try to get some capital in order to build a tourist hotspot. Carboni and their mutual relation Pipo Calo, the cashier for the Porta Nuova clan in the Cosa Nostra, were also interested in the schemes being run by Roberto Calvi of Banco Ambrosiano. Namely, Banco Ambrosiano had been involved in some of their development projects, and unfortunately for Calvi, that house of cards had been falling apart for years. First, there were issues that had to be resolved with a loan sharker turned speculator, Balducci, who hit it big with the jet setters before having his own score settled by none other than De Pedis and Abruciati. It bothered the Malianesi that these Testaccini were basically freelancing with these projects involving the Sicilians and their speculators, but they kept things going. Finally, in 1982, it looked like the corrupt banker Roberto Calvi was going to talk to judges about the schemes he'd been putting together with the mobster Michele Sindona and the leader of Propaganda Due, Licio Gelli. Carboni and the Sicilians asked Abruciati to send him a message, so Abruciati makes a plan that seems easy enough. On April 27th, he waits for Calvi's vice president, Roberto Rossone, to leave his office and shoot him. Only the gun jammed. Abruciati tried again and was able to get Rossoni in the legs, but his driver and the security guard had extra split seconds to react. Sometimes that's all you need. After running back to the motorcycle where his accomplice waited, Abruciati turned around in a panic to shoot the driver who had raced to Rossone's side. This was another mistake, though, because after the driver of the bike started to move, bullets from the security guard's 357 Magnum tore into Abruciati's back. He fell from the bike and died in the street, formerly one of the most powerful men of Rome's criminal underworld. On his person, police found a book of matches with the phone number of a guy named Ernesto Diotalevi, who the chameleon had known since his days with the clan de Marsiliesi. This was the number he was going to call after the hit to affirm that it had gone smoothly. Diotalevi was, of course, one of the early connections between the Banda and Pipo Calo of the Cosa Nostra, which by this point was being completely overrun by the Corleonesi. This whole episode spooks Calvi, who was out on appeal from being sentenced to four years for financial crimes. In June, Calvi decides it's finally time to take a trip, but as usual for the foolish Calvi, it's out of the fat and into the friar. 
Who secures his passports? Ernesto Diotalevi, the critical link between the Banda della Maliana and the Cosa Nostra. So the story goes, Roberto Calvi, a formidable but quiet leader of the conservative cornerstone of the Milanese financial world, Banco Ambrosiano, is found hanging from the Blackfriar Bridge in London with five bricks in his pocket and $14,000 in three separate currencies. Later investigations into Calvi's apparent suicide, but likely murder, would center precisely on that nexus between Pippo Calo of Porta Nuova, the developer Flavio Carboni, and Ernesto Diotalevi, with the Banda della Maliana, along with Licio Gelli, of course. While those investigations didn't really pan out to much, Carboni and Diotalevi would be convicted of the attempted hit on that vice president, Rossone. So, Giuseppucci's gone. Celis is gone, Abruciati's gone, Carminati's gone, Luigi Ciavardini, Valerio and Cristino Fioravanti, they're both in jail. And Alessandro Alebrandi is now dead. So the NAR leadership is in a crisis. Basically, all that's left is Francesca Mambro and her devoted follower, Giorgio Valle. What is there left to do but call for revenge? So, Walter Sordi, one of Alibrandi's closest collaborators with the Banda della Maliana and the NAR, calls for a holy war. Sordi is sort of an interesting person. He's 21 years old, tall and physically large, but also pretty empty-headed. One of his friends once stated, he always has something to say about everything and everyone and has criticisms of futile things for which friction starts to ferment spreads and challenges and becomes vengeful towards anyone who is not part of the ephemeral who he wishes to have around. Sordi was an open book in which his aridity, his conceptual selfishness, and his consequent actions of an exclusively personal nature were written far from ideal drives. Sordi has always been in search of fame, in search of giving himself importance in front of his friends, he has always tried to appear like a mythical Viking of our times, a sleepless warrior. Since Sordi had been injured in the hand in that December shootout that claimed Ali Brandi's life, he had to steal away into the lair of his comrade Marco Cocchi. Healing from his wounds in his hand, Sordi nominates a group of teens, Sordi boys, and takes the leadership of the group. Another comrade said, Walter became more assertive and violent. I didn't respect him. I was on good terms with him, but it was one of those somewhat forced friendships. His exaltation grew during his time in hiding. There you become a hunter, an animal of prey. You must... You must always shoot first. On the one hand, you exasperate the situation... On the other, you're full of paranoia. On December 6th, a Sunday at about 10 a.m., a couple of fascists positioned themselves suspiciously near the car of Brigadier Massimo Rapicetti and selected Carabinieri Romano Radici. The Carabinieri call on them to come closer, and in a move to put away his newspaper, one of the sketchy dudes takes out a gun from his pocket, shooting twice and killing Radici. One of them is injured in the subsequent shootout, but they escape, claiming responsibility for the NAR and stating honor to comrade Alibrandi. 
In the months that follow, Mambro is thrown for a loop. She wanders around Roman department stores and art museums, unsure about what to do or where to go. She keeps in touch with Valerio, but people think he's a snitch. The Terza Posizione resents the Nar for killing their Sicily head Ciccio Mangiamelli, but Mambro still has a solid reputation in the fascist milieu. In particular, there's a group from Terza Posizione, led by their former security boss Roberto Nistri, that has fallen into the circles of the Nar. On March 3, 1982, the Sordi boys get things going again by robbing the Banco di Roma. A couple of days later, Mambro and Vale are going to join Nistri's group in a hit on the Banca Nazionale del Lavoro. This was a difficult target at the intersection of two main roads with a market in front and lots of tar traffic. The robbery is planned for opening time when few customers are around, but the others arrive late and didn't notice a police car with civilian plates was there. They go in and demand the money. A plainclothes carabinieri enters but is immediately disarmed. A passerby sees the action from the outside and flags down a passing cop car. Police start responding to the scene. Vale and Mambro are monitoring things outside of the bank and start saying that it's time to go. The robbers begin to leave when Paolo Espa, a plainclothes cop responding to the scene yells stop police he's immediately shot and wounded in the arm and leg but squeezes off a shot that hits one of the gnar in the chest lucky for him he brought a bulletproof vest everyone starts shooting at this point it's three minutes of hell people start fleeing in all directions an eyewitness described it to a reporter as the end of the world vale and nistra run away on foot because the second getaway car is late one 17-year-old art student on the sidewalk is hit in the head by a ricocheting bullet from the NAR member and dies on the scene. Shooting her way to the getaway car, Mamro tells the driver to grab Vale, who's on foot. The driver stops and jumps out of the car to provide covering fire as Vale and Nistra get in. The carabinieri fire a machine gun into the side of the car and Mambro takes a bullet in the gut. She's driven to a garage where she's hemorrhaging bad. A friendly doctor gives her a dose of painkillers that does nothing for her terminal condition. She gets them to take her to a hospital, so they leave her in a white car outside and call the hospital, telling them where to find her. She's discovered and arrested that day, March 5th, 1982. Giorgio Valle was distraught by Mambro's injury and arrest. Cops caught up to him in a subway station, but he flees in a shootout and carjacks an Alpha Sud Grand Theft Auto style. Just two months after Mambro was arrested, to the day, the counterterrorism police catch up to Valle again. Following a known accomplice named Carmine Paladino, the cops grabbed him in front of the hideout on Via Decio Mure, took his keys, and bust in. The newspapers announced the next day that Vale had screamed, I'll kill you, and loosed more than a dozen rounds against the cops before shooting himself in the head. A paraffin glove test indicated that he had no gunpowder residue on his hands, however, to which some said that perhaps his hands had been washed while he was laid up in a coma at the hospital. The imprint of a recoil spring rod on Valle's temple indicated that a gun had indeed been pressed against his head before firing. The bullet that killed him was never found. The police, of course, deny the notion, promoted by his parents, that Valle was suicided, because the police say that they wanted him alive to talk. Sordi now moved around Rome in stolen cars, armed to the teeth, vying for the leadership of whatever was left of the Nar. 
On September the 17th, 1982, he's arrested in a hideout littered with pamphlets and books by Franco Freda, Giulio Evola, and so on. Like Cristiano, but even more so, he turns state evidence and confesses everything he knows to the magistrates, both about the NAR and the Banda della Maliana. Between the convictions, the gang wars, and the infighting, the Banda della Maliana, meanwhile, was getting messier and it was getting dirtier. Realizing that his own gang was probably going to hunt him down next, Fulvio the Mouse Lucioli, with his shaggy hair who had been with the gang and Celis since the early days, fled to Venezuela, trying to escape the increasing tensions between Malianesi and Testaccini. As his former gangmates tried to find him, suspicions turned on his brother, who was brutally tortured to death and disposed of in the Tiber. When word got back to the mouse in 1983, he turned state evidence for the Italian courts. Getting out of the game a few years later, Sicilia, who had helped connect the gang to coke trafficking in the late 1970s, came clean to the police, resulting in the arrest and trial of more than 90 defendants in February 1987. Sicilia would be assassinated on November 18, 1991, at a shoe shop owned by his friend. By the end of it, De Pedis and Toscano went to war. Colafili sided with Toscano and the Malianesi, and they hatched a plot to kill De Pedis. Before they could do it, though, De Pedis hit first, ambushing Toscano in Ostia, the Testaccini's turf. Then, the Malianesi took revenge. Colafili called a meeting just outside the Campo di Fiori on Via del Pellegrino with De Peris, who arrived on a moped in the afternoon. After the meeting, a motorcycle drives up, bang, bang, drives off. De Peris gets away a few hundred yards on the moped and then, boom, collapses dead in the street, aged 36 years old. Both men had been ambushed by members of their former gang. And that's basically it, folks. The NAR, the Banda della Maliana, their fates sealed in blood. Thanks very much for listening. This has been the Years of Lead Pod. I'm your host, Alexander Reed Roth. <laughs>